But we're talking about the kingdom of God in this series. That's the subject of these four weeks, this series that we began on Easter. And by the way, those of you who've had some heartburn because you're worried about Ecclesiastes, like what happened to Ecclesiastes? It's coming back, okay? We will resume that series once we're done with this one, and we'll actually preach all the way through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Imagine that, finishing a book study here at New Life Church. (laughs) So you can look forward to that. The main message of Jesus Christ when he was here, when he walked this earth, was this. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. This new form of government, the government of God, is literally, he said, breaking into this world, to our world. It would be unlike anything ever seen before, and Jesus declared that the arrival of the kingdom of God would be good news for all of humanity. He announced it right at the outset of his ministry Recorded in Mark 1, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. God's kingdom is coming near and that's good news, he was saying. And he called those who were listening to him to respond appropriately with repentance and faith. Believe it, he said. Believe it. It's here. And so we're learning about this kingdom of God, just kind of what it is and how someone can enter into it and how it works and and how it's different than the kingdoms of this earth. One important thing to understand about the kingdom of God is this. Number one on your outline there, the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not fully here. Bible scholars sometimes call it the already but not yet kingdom of God. (laughs) What they mean is that Jesus came and he clearly said that he was bringing with him the kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is among you. And the reason he could say that is because the king, Jesus himself, was among them, right? But he also said that it was not yet here in its full and final form. That is yet to come. And it is still yet to come. A couple years ago, a mentor of mine taught me a word that that defines this reality, this period that we're in. It's the word prolepsis. Prolepsis, and I'd never heard that word before. It sounded like a disease of some sort to me, like, I'm coming down with prolepsis, you know. It's not a disease. It's a word that means this. It means the current manifestation of a future guaranteed reality. Or as one man said, it's the presence of the future. Partial presence now of the full future that is yet to come. Maybe a helpful illustration of this would be to think about our own election cycle, our own presidential election cycle here in our country. And we know there's a period of time between election day in November and inauguration day at the end of January, right? About 85 days or so. That period, and during that time, we say that we have a new president, the president elect, but his presidency is not fully installed yet, right? Until Inauguration Day. So the new administration is already here, but it's not fully here. That's the idea here of prolepsis. And with regard to the kingdom of God, 
we could say that's the era we're living in right now. The proleptic stage of the kingdom of God, which is here, but it's not fully here. But here's what we need to understand. The born-again citizens of this new kingdom are already living out the values of God's reign right now during the prolepsis. The governing policies of the new administration that define the new culture of the kingdom of God are already in force. And we as the subjects of his kingdom are seeking to actively live those out in our daily lives. In fact, we want to spread it, right? We want to spread the culture of God's kingdom. We want to give our neighbors a glimpse of what life is really like living under the gracious reign of King Jesus, who's a good king. So, first fact to understand, the kingdom of God is already here, but not fully here. That's still to come. It's already, but not yet. Now, here's a second truth, and this is the one we're going to park on mostly this morning. The kingdom of God is countercultural. Countercultural. It's different. It feels different than the prevailing culture. It looks different. It looks kind of upside down to people. The culture of Christ's kingdom promotes things that our world does not promote. It lays out pathways that our world would be reluctant to take. It defines success differently than this world defines success. So it's, it's inverted from what seems normal to most people. But listen, even though that's the case, our king does not call us to feel superior to our friends or neighbors, right? To act all superior like, like we know more or we're better than them. I believe the way in which we live out the culture of this kingdom of Christ should be um, appealing to our neighbors. It should be intriguing. There should be a, a winsomeness about how we live. There should not be any judgmentalism or condescension at all. We want them to love our king like we do. He is a humble king, so a proud, arrogant, I'm better than you kind of attitude should not be named among us. It shouldn't. This upside-down kingdom is governed by royal laws, policies, if you will, that appear to run counter to the culture. They sound strange. They sound kind of weird. Last week, we talked about life coming from death in the kingdom of God, that to really live, we must first, what? Die, in a sense, just like our Lord did. And we talked about the Calvary Road. And God's plan to take his kingdom citizens through death experiences of a sort so that we might be raised to experience a new kind of life with him. This is fascinating to me. Well, today I'm going to introduce a second governing principle of the kingdom of God that we need to to pay attention to. And here it is. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. You've heard that before. Would you say it with me? The way up is down. One more time. The way up is down. In the kingdom of God, God elevates the lowly, the humble. As one guy put it, we must give up to go up. 
Now, Jesus taught this a lot. Here's what he said on one occasion, Matthew 23, where this is found. He said this, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the way up is down. Humble yourself and you will be lifted up. You'll be raised up. You'll be exalted. But notice that the converse is also true. The way down is up. Exalt yourself, promote yourself, and God will go to work to humble you. You ever experienced that? This is the way of the king. This is the law of his kingdom, and it, it kind of turns the conventional wisdom on its head. Go down to go up? Sounds like nonsense. But I want us to see two ways this principle plays out. And the first is this. Humility is the pathway to honor. Humility is the pathway to being honored in this kingdom of God. This is both a, a New Testament and an Old Testament principle. James 4.10 in the New. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Proverbs says it this way. Before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Now, that's not usually the way it works in this world, right? In the kingdom of earth. Here it's often the self-promoters who get all the honors, who get all the accolades, who get all the notoriety. We're bombarded with messages every day. Get your name out there. Show them what you got. Be your own brand. Make a name for yourself. The world says exalt yourself. That's the pathway to fame and notoriety and greatness. And often, let's be honest, that does work but only here in the kingdom of earth, which is going to fade away. But Jesus would teach his people a different way. He said in the kingdom of God, which by the way will endure forever, the pathway to honor is paved with humility, not self-promotion. I think we just need to let that sink in. There's a lot we could say about this. I just want to point out two things. God is looking for humble people. The Bible says his, his eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth. He's looking for humble people to raise up. And he's looking for proud people to bring down. And then second, it's the humble heart that gets God's attention. It's the humble heart that attracts the grace of God. Maybe you hear this and you're thinking, well, what exactly is humility? What, what, what is humbleness? And I like this simple definition I came across. I think it aligns with what we see in the scriptures. Humility is assessing yourself accurately. Assessing yourself accurately, which means seeing yourself as God sees you because he's the one who sees most accurately. It's not thinking too highly of yourself. On the one hand, it's not thinking too lowly of yourself on the other. It's viewing yourself, as I like to say, through gospel-tinted lenses, which is how God views us. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's knowing in your heart that you are simultaneously, what, a saint and a sinner, right? 
I like to say I'm a mixed bag. I've got, you know, godly impulses in my heart and I have fleshly impulses in my heart. I'm a mixed bag. But you know what? My primary identity is child of the king. That's my primary identity. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm a royal child in his family. And that's actually the humble view of things. Because that's God's assessment of all those who are in Christ by faith. So can we talk about pride for a few moments? Pride is toxic. Isn't that true? Because of that, God is not averse to regularly puncturing our pride, lest we get all bloated and too full of ourselves, thinking that we are the epitome of awesomeness. It was John Stott who said, Humility is our greatest friend, and pride is our greatest enemy. Jonathan Edwards went even further. He said, Pride is the worst viper in the human heart, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. And it was the Lord's half-brother James who taught us that God resists the proud. Literally, he stiff-arms the proud. But what? He gives grace to the humble. Think about pride. Pride is actually contending for supremacy with God. Just like Lucifer did. Think about that. What was the very first sin? Was it not pride arising within the heart of Lucifer, the angel? The end of pride is self-glorification, which is depriving God of something that only He is worthy to receive. No sin is more offensive to God than pride. No sin is more satanic than pride. And when God made a list of the sins that he hates, guess what's at the top of that list in Proverbs 6? A proud look. God hates pride. Left unchecked, pride wreaks havoc. It causes great damage. Think about it. It undermines unity. Pride does in your marriage, in your family, in a church. Pride sabotages sweet fellowship and ruins it. Pride hijacks intimacy. It's our pride that keeps us from being willing to admit that we were wrong. To own up, to confess. And it's our pride that comes to our rescue whenever someone tries to confront us about something. Says, you're better than that. You don't need to take that from them. When really we should be grateful. Thank you for pointing that out. That could be a blind spot in me. It's pride that stirs up defensiveness. And listen, it's our pride that keeps us focused mostly on other people's faults and flaws and shortcomings and failures and sins instead of looking for evidences of the grace of God in them. You've heard of Pride and Prejudice, right? Jane Austen's book and the movie. It's said of one of the main characters, Mr. Darcy. Remember him? It says, Mr. Darcy was a man who never looks at any woman but to see a blemish. I wonder, is that your inclination? Are you one who looks at other people only to point out where they fall short, where they're imperfect, 
their faults, their flaws, one blemish after another. And I think apart from the grace of God, that's actually the tendency we all have. Instead of looking for encouraging signs that God's at work in their life. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, the Bible says. God is intent on killing our pride, slaying it, and in its place cultivating a brokenness of heart, a humble heart. By the way, that's what gets God's attention, humility of heart. That's what prompts Him to come and work strongly on our behalf to exalt us. This is the the kind of person that God's looking for when He's seeking to go to work. Isaiah 66.2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look. It's the Lord speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. God exalts those who refuse to exalt themselves, who shirk away from the limelight, but who instead are willing to serve in obscurity and are willing to deflect all praise to God and give credit where credit is due. By the way, isn't that how it went with Jesus Christ himself? Doesn't it say in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself completely, even to the point of dying on a cross? Next word, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. God exalts the humble. Jesus Christ humbled himself, and God, with great joy, raised him up. That's how things work in this kingdom of God, this upside-down kingdom of God. Selfish ambition and pushing yourself forward all the time is not the pathway to honor. Humility is. God's way up is down. This principle plays out in a second way. Humility is the pathway to honor, yes, but second, serving is the pathway to greatness, to true greatness. And I think this is so helpful because you hear that first one about humility and maybe you think, okay then, humility, yeah, yeah, but what am I supposed to do to be humble? Should I crawl around on the ground all the time and just keep saying, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm nothing but a worm and and not look people in the eye to show that I'm humble? No, that's not it. To shed some more light on it, let's look at an incident from the life of Jesus as he was nearing the cross. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, which is where he would be crucified, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, that's the Jews, And then deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, how clear is that? We talk about Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection. He's crystal clear here with his disciples. But he was also showing that he was embodying this principle, I'm going to go down, and then I'm going to be raised up. Well, how how did the people respond there who were listening to him? 
Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you know their names, James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, there's kind of a disconnect here, isn't there? We're going to Jerusalem. I want to be crucified. I want to die and be raised again. Hey, can my sons have some cabinet posts in your new administration? I think that'd be really awesome. I mean, just kind of like missing the the mood of the moment there. Well, this is either a mom, you know, maybe just typical mom advocating for her boys, lobbying for them to have these positions of prominence in Jesus' kingdom, or James and John put her up to it. Hey, mom, we don't want to appear too self-promoting here, so could you go and put in a good word for us with Jesus? Well, how did Jesus respond? Verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. Cocky young guys, right? Yeah, bring it on. You know, we're good. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Those appointments come from the Father. And when the ten, that's the other disciples who were eavesdropping, when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Well, this was not an isolated instance of this kind of posturing by the disciples. Their constant pursuit of greatness and honor and recognition is very well documented all throughout the Gospels, and it really wasn't very subtle. On more than one occasion, they were caught arguing with each other on the road about who was going to be the greatest. I think I'm going to be the most awesome. No, I think it's me. Remember, these were young men who who were receiving training from the Son of God Himself. So take heart that even those being discipled by the greatest mentor of them all still didn't get it. This kingdom... Law obviously had not sunk all the way in, even at this late stage in the game. Well, Jesus wasn't going to let this pass. He he wanted to use it as an occasion to disciple the disciples into deeper discipleship. And what he did is he, he basically redefined, radically redefined what it means to seek after greatness and what true greatness is in the sight of God. Listen to what he said, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him. Okay, guys, come on in. (laughs) Time out here. Let's talk about this. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, so think about this world we live in, fellas, out there. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They glory in their position of dominance. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
I wonder what the vibe was when he finished saying that. Maybe kind of quiet like it is in here right now. This is like a mini sermon from Jesus Christ himself. Three points. I love this. First, the culture. He says, think about the culture we live in. Out there, it's all about power. Acquiring it. Holding on to it. Consolidating it. Using it. That's what's going on all around us. People angling for power. Once they have it, using their powerful position to lord it over other people and order people around and give directives and tell people what to do. That's the culture we live in. But then the contrast, it shall not be so among you. Not in my kingdom. That's not how it's going to work. Amping up on other people. And then his third point is Christ. Fellas, fellas, fellas. Did you not hear what I just said? Look to my example of selflessness and serving others. Look to my soon sacrifice on the cross for direction, but also for empowerment to live the way that I'm showing you to live, the way life ought to be lived in my kingdom, giving my life, laying down my life to serve others. Now, I think it's interesting to note that Jesus didn't chastise his disciples for ambition, for having ambition, for wanting to be great. He didn't skewer them for seeking honor. He didn't. Jesus himself was a man of great ambition. And he deeply desired honor. Remember in his prayer, he said, Oh, Father, I want the glory I had with you before the world began. This desire to be highly thought of, highly regarded, it's deeply rooted in we who have been made in the image of God. All image bearers desire honor and respect just as our maker does. It runs deep in us. So what Jesus was challenging here was not that, but rather how they were going about it. And for what end? What ultimate purpose? Evidently, there is some scale of greatness, some scale of rank in the kingdom of God. It's okay to aspire to greatness in that sense. But the way to attain it is not by powering up on other people. That's what he was saying. Not by making sure when you walk into a room that everybody understands where they are in the pecking order. Understanding that they're beneath you or beneath me in the pecking order. No, 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 no. Not in the kingdom of God. The way, the pathway to attain true greatness is by serving other people, he said. It's by pushing them ahead, sacrificing ourselves for the benefit, for the good of others. When our sons were younger and lived at home, we tried to instill in them, however feebly, our efforts, uh, these kingdom principles. You know, I'd type them up on my computer and print them out in big 70 font type, you know, and 70 type font and tape them up in their room on their walls and things. These, you know, dad's principles for living for Jesus. And uh, one of them I remember was this one. You become successful by helping others become successful. It's true. You become truly successful by pushing other people ahead of yourself. That's what true success is in the kingdom of God. It's based on these verses right here. That's how Jesus himself defined 
what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of God. It's also how he measured success. Not by how many people serve you, not by how many are underneath you on the organizational chart, but by how many people you serve. In the kingdom of God, it's not about the corner office and the chief parking space and all that kind of stuff. It's about how many people can I get underneath and push ahead. That's how it is in this upside-down, inverted kingdom of God. So let me draw a couple of corollaries from this. First, humility is demonstrated not by crawling along on the ground saying, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, but through serving other people. That's how humility is expressed. Second, true greatness is measured not by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. Third, cultivating a servant's heart. A servant's heart is a key aspect of following Jesus. And fourth, servanthood is the pathway to leadership in the kingdom of God. Great leaders are, first of all, great servants. You've heard the term servant leadership? Our world now is coming around to recognizing the value of this concept of servant leadership as the most effective way to lead. But they should rightly give a nod to Jesus Christ, those authors should, because he invented the concept and he embodied it perfectly. Think about it. Never has there been a servant leader like Jesus Christ. I mean, what king leaves his royal palace in heaven and traverses galaxies to live among his people? What leader goes to such great lengths, even taking on human flesh, to identify with the very people he hopes to serve? What ruler stoops down and washes the grime off the smelly feet of his followers? What great monarch humbles himself to the point of being humiliated and dying like a sacrificial lamb to pay for the wrongs of his people and does it willingly? Who does that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. That's why we love him. That's why we follow him. I love following a leader who only calls me to do what he himself has already done. Jesus said this in Luke 22, verse 26. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. But I am among you as the one who serves. That's your Lord and mine, a servant leader. And in this age of the kingship of God, this proleptic era, where God is establishing thousands of little kingdom outposts all over the world to express the unique culture of his kingdom, in this era, God is looking for humble servants. He's looking for humble servants whose hearts are perfect towards him, who have the same mindset that his son has. He's looking for those servants to open up for them more and more opportunities, unique opportunities, surprising opportunities, increasing opportunities to serve others. And you know what? He aims to exalt his humble servants, to raise them up, to promote them, to honor them with more responsibility in his kingdom, both now and in that ultimate final manifestation of the kingdom of God. So the way up is down. 
The way to go high is to go low. Servanthood is the pathway to honor in the kingdom of God. When I start to think about what it means to serve like Jesus served, several things come to mind with some questions. I think about serving in secret. Do I care if anybody knows what I'm doing or not? Does that matter to me? I think about serving in humility. Am I in it just for the recognition, just for the kudos, just for the props that people will notice me? Am I serving sacrificially? Is it costing me anything to serve? Am I giving up anything for the privilege of serving Christ? I think about serving faithfully. Can I be counted on? Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. Can I be counted on by my church family, by my family? I think about serving with perseverance. I mean, what do I do when it gets hard? When somebody doesn't like it? When it's no longer convenient? When I feel underappreciated or undersupported? Then what do I do? Do I bail out and say, you know, heck with this. Let somebody else do it. Or do I, like Christ, set my face like a flint towards Jerusalem and persevere to the end? Let's be honest. There, there are some barriers that can keep us from serving, right? Some of them are internal things inside, obstacles in here. Some of them are outside of us. Some people have an internal struggle with feeling inadequate. They think, you know, I just I don't have a lot to offer. I don't think I'm that needed around here. Other people are paralyzed by their past, shame from their past, or failure from their past. They're like, yeah, I did that once, it didn't go well, I'm glad to to bow out here and never recover. Some people experienced burnout or had some other bad experience that causes them to kind of hang back. Many people have just kind of filled up their lives with so many activities that serving Christ just kind of gets pushed out to the margins. They're like, I'm busy, you know, I don't have time really. And we know what, what that person's really saying is that they've chosen other priorities, right? And let's be honest, some people are just so myopic, just so self focused, or even just family focused that they can't see any needs outside that little circle. They don't see that there's a whole community that needs them or a world that needs them. Some people are unaware of the needs. Some people are waiting for an opportunity to come to them rather than taking the initiative to seek it out. Some people just need a person in leadership to see they've got something to offer and to to open a door for them, to give them a shot at it. Hey, I see see something in you. I, I believe God can use you in this situation or this ministry. I don't have time to get into it, but I would contend that all of these obstacles, these barriers, these reasons, these excuses, whatever you want to call them, every single one of them gets undercut when people focus their minds and their hearts on Jesus and his gospel. Think about it. Self-focus, self-focus gets undercut by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the selfless servant who laid down his life for us. That just, if you get that, that'll melt your heart. Feelings of inadequacy, like I don't have anything to offer, those start to dissolve as we yield to the voice of the Holy Spirit in us saying, I have made you competent as a minister of Christ. Misplaced priorities. 
get corrected when we see with renewed eyes the priority that captured the heart of Jesus. Experiences of failure in the past, mess-ups in the past, come to be seen as redeemable when we invite Jesus into those failures and begin to view them as part of His plan and part of His training to prepare us for future service of the King. And complacency and apathy vanish in light of the compelling grasp of the urgency of the gospel mission that Jesus was on and that he invites us to join him in. Church, it's the gospel. It's focusing our attention on Jesus Christ and him crucified that prompts us and enables us to get past all of our issues and step out of the shadows and offer ourselves to serve our king in this kingdom age. It is. In the words of that great theologian, Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. He was right. He, he was right. Serve your spouse. Let me say that again. Serve your spouse. Don't be like I was this week. I had one of those nights, I was just pitiful, selfish, self-absorbed. I didn't want to serve my wife. I mean, it was just horrible. I said things I shouldn't have said. God convicted me that night. The next day I said, honey, just anything I said or did from 5.30 on last night, I am just not proud of. I've confessed to Jesus. It's just get it under the blood of Christ. And would you please forgive me for how much of a jerk I was? You know what she said? She said, sure, I'll forgive you. What a girl. What a girl. So don't be like that me. (laughs) Serve your spouse, that precious person that God has given you to partner up with in life. Serve your family. Serve your community. Serve the poor. Serve your neighbor. Serve your church family. We have lots of needs here. Serve your Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? It's possible to change. It's possible to be transformed from a self-absorbed, self-focused person into a humble servant of Christ. Think about James and John. Think about those two brothers who are angling for positions of prominence in the cabinet of, of Jesus' kingdom. Think about what you know about James and John. Both of them ended their lives as Great ones, truly great ones in the kingdom of God. What do you know about James? James went on to have a great ministry, and he ended up dying as a martyr for Christ. Imagine his rich reception into heaven. And John, John went on to pastor a great church in Ephesus, and he wrote five books that we have in our New Testament, including the book of Revelation. What made the difference? What changed them? Each of them personally experienced and absorbed and saw with their eyes and took to heart the experience of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the gospel that made the difference. Transform those guys. You know, we have hundreds, hundreds of wonderful, humble servants right here in this church family, right here in this room right now. Just about everything we do at New Life is the result of people who have 
been soaked in the gospel, banding together into teams and doing kingdom work together, serving others. I think of those who provide meals to homeless people, week in, week out, month in, month out, done it for years. Thank God for those humble servants. I think of those who care for precious adults with disabilities who are part of our Me and My Friends ministry here at New Life. What a wonderful ministry that is. I think of those who team up on short-term missions trips and go to other places to serve people in other parts of this world. I think of those who run our technical ministries week in and week out every week here in this church so that you can hear the music that's coming from the platform and you can hear me talk and playing the videos and all that kind of stuff week in, week out, serving our, our body in that way. I think of those who host small groups in their homes which means you have to dust on Wednesday afternoon, you know, and wipe the counters down, and, right? I love hosting small group in our home. I think of those who lead those small groups. I think of people who love on the small children in our kids' life ministries, week in and week out, and in wanna clubs on a Wednesday night. I think of those who offer themselves to teach classes that help people grow in their faith and grow deeper in their knowledge and understanding of Christ. I think of those who minister... Christ to middle schoolers, Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and high schoolers. All of this done by humble servants of Jesus who just offer themselves selflessly to serve him by serving his people. How about you? Do you have a place in this body of believers of service? You know, I believe serving Christ is the highest privilege of a born-again individual, to serve Him. It's an honor to serve Him. It's part of our worship of Him as well. And I will say this, if you're a ministry partner in this church, but you're not currently serving anywhere on a regular basis, please know that we're in a season right now where your church family needs you. Your church family needs you. Need you to step up and offer yourself to serve somewhere in some capacity. We've got a number of openings right now. Many of them are what I call first serve opportunities where you don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have a lot of training or even a lot of experience. Plus, you can serve a trial period for a season of time to see if this is a good fit. Some people serve weekly. Some people serve twice a month or once a month. There's lots of different possibilities and opportunities, but I wonder if the Lord is prompting anybody in this room right now to step up and say, you know, I need to be serving. Jesus served me such that I, how can I not respond in kind? Offer yourself to serve in our little kingdom outpost here that we call New Life Church. Sometimes it just starts with finding out where the need is and offering to meet it. For me, it started with stacking chairs. I was in Bible college and I heard a sermon like this in a chapel service about serving Christ. What a great privilege it is. Just find out where the need is and meet it. And I walked up to the guy afterwards and said, I'm willing to serve. Where do you need me? He said, stacking chairs. Start stacking chairs. There's like 3,000 of them in this room right now. Start stacking them against the wall. All right. I want to serve Christ. And I started stacking chairs. And I stacked chairs for several years. 
And it was good for me to do that. It was good for me to do that. Gave me a more accurate picture of what it means to, to serve Christ. Out of the limelight, just nobody really knows or cares. It's a labor of love because Christ loves me. So sometimes you just start by saying, where is the need? And you stack chairs. Listen, if the Lord's talking to you about this today and you'd be willing to take a step, maybe you don't know all the answers yet, but you'd be willing to take a step towards serving. Here are three ways you could indicate that to us, okay? First, on that little tear-off card, there's a little box that says, interested in serving in a ministry. You could check that box, take that tear-off, and drop it in the offering bag when it goes by. Someone will reach out to you and contact you. It's not like you're signing your life away, but you're saying, I'm offering myself to serve my church family somewhere, and there will be a conversation trying to find where's a good fit, maybe something, a place you've served before, a place you'd like to serve. If you're tech savvy and you're taking notes on our app, you can scroll down to the bottom and there's an interested in serving link on the bottom of that, your notes on the app today. And you can click on that. Same thing will happen. Someone will just reach back out to you and say, hey, tell me a little bit about, you know, your interest in serving. Or you can text serve to that number on your smartphone. And the same thing will happen. Someone will get that and reach back out to you, uh, hopefully this week. Just start the conversation. I'm a pastor. I love thinking about how healthy this body of believers would be if everybody who named the name of Christ was serving. I mean, pastors can dream, right? I love thinking about this body of Christ pulsating with life and health, because everybody's in the game, everybody's doing their part, it's a huge team effort, we're encouraging, supporting, lifting up each other, and little ones are being taught about Christ, and middle schoolers, and high schoolers, and needy folks, and people with disabilities, and then that spills out into our community, I mean, that's the kind of vision that keeps me up at night, in a good way, and I think it's something Jesus himself wants, and so I urge you to listen to his voice today, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these moments this morning. and Lord Jesus, to you especially, we want to say thank you for serving us. The king who stooped down to serve his people. It's, it's mind-boggling to think about, but thank you. Thank you for laying down your life that we might be saved, that we might have your life. And Lord, I pray that if there are those in this room who have been hanging back for whatever reason, not really stepping out of the shadows, not really offering themselves, I pray you'd tap them on the shoulder even in this moment and say, I want you, I've called you to play a a role in my work, in my kingdom work. Take the initiative, step out, offer yourself. I pray that you will. And Lord, may this body of believers be everything you've ever hoped. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.